going to take this morning, as I mentioned last week, just one phrase out of Colossians chapter 3 and verse 11 that I was not able to just breeze by. It's uh, one of those profound statements in Scripture that require us to chew on them over and over and over and over again, and even then we'll never plumb the depths of them. So we're going to be in Colossians 3.11. There should be an outline in your bulletin. There are printed messages uh, at both exits. Feel free to grab one, and uh, you can get one now or later. And those, all those printed and the audio messages are now on uh, the church website, which links up with sermonaudio.com. just want to read verse 11, and we're going to focus on the last phrase of the verse. Um, Paul is talking about how we have, our old man has died, our new man has been created according to the image of the one who created him. And I believe that rather than saying a renewal in which it should refer to the new man in which There is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and freeman. And here's the phrase we want to focus on this morning. But Christ is all and in all. In 1990, I was wrestling with a very difficult ministry matter. It really was going to determine the current and then future direction of my ministry. It arose because an associate pastor, this was at the church I was at in California at the time, an associate pastor there wanted to uh, bring into the church uh, some programs to help people who had some deep emotional needs These programs would be based on a book called The Twelve Steps for Christians and another book called When Your World Makes No Sense by a Christian psychologist named Henry Cloud. And there were some other materials related to codependency and some of those issues that integrated psychology with the Christian faith. At the time, I was pretty open to that. It seemed like these programs helped people and I myself had used and promoted books by uh, James Dobson and Norm Wright and other Christian psychologists, so I said, sure, that's fine, but first let me look over the materials before we do this. And the more I read, the more alarmed I became with the way that these books misused the scripture, taking verses out of context, sometimes just throwing away the scripture and citing secular sources and so on. And it all kind of drew a line in the sand or came to a head when I read in Henry Cloud's book that the standard Christian answers, that was his phrase, and by that he went on to mention faith and obedience and um, God's word, he called them worthless medicine when it came to dealing with these deep psychological problems. 
The rest of the book goes on to present what I would call a, a baptized version of developmental psychology. If you've ever had a course in that at the university, you know what I mean by that phrase. And uh, he claimed that his approach, which essentially was developmental psychology, provided a solution to problems like depression, anxiety, panic, addictions, guilt, and other psychological maladies. I am ashamed now to admit that when I first read the book, I wasn't that put off by it. I thought, well, it's got a few problems. It's not that bad, though, for a psychology book. And uh, yet, at the same time, I couldn't shake that one comment, which I kept coming back to, and it was finally the tipping point for me at that time. Then in early 1991, I, I keep a record of what I read each year, so I know what I was reading when, I, I read J.C. Ryle's book, Holiness. If you've never read J.C. Ryle, you're letting a treasure sit unused. May, may I say that? You can read Ryle online. There's a website. And he is one of the most... Um, insightful, practical Christian writers you'll ever find. He was an Anglican in England in the 19th century. He's a little overboard on Anglicanism, but if you set that aside, uh, Ryle is really, really solid. So I read Holiness, and you get to the final chapter, and it's really a profound chapter called Christ is All, and I am indebted to that chapter for much of this sermon. You can read that chapter online as well. Um, right after I read Ryle, the next book I read was John MacArthur's Our Sufficiency in Christ. And in that book, he confronts the problems of psychology and pragmatism and mysticism which have infiltrated the American church. And he shows how Christ is all-sufficient in dealing with our problems in life as believers. Uh, that same year, it was a good year for reading, that same year I read for the first time cover to cover, actually cover to cover, cover to cover, because it's two volumes, John Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion, which is one of the most life-changing books I've ever read. And he begins that volume, the whole thing, with this profound sentence. He says, nearly all the wisdom we possess, that is to say true and sound wisdom, consists of two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. And of course, he means as revealed in scripture. And then in the next little section, he elaborates on that. He said, again, it is certain that man never achieves a clear knowledge of himself unless he has first looked upon God's face and then descends from contemplating him to scrutinize himself. The editor of the Institutes, by the way, says that that first sentence governs everything else that Calvin writes in the next 1,600 pages. So it's a remarkable sentence, and he just unpacks that for the rest of the Institutes. And the, the life-changing part of it was he exalts God and his majesty in such a way that it just causes you to fall on your face and 
uh, realized the grace of God that he reached down to us. And so after I finished reading Calvin and was processing all of this, and I'm condensing a months-long process here into just a brief description, I I wrote an article uh, that was subsequently published called How John Calvin Led Me to Repent of Christian Psychology. And that's on the church website if you ever want to read it. But the cumulative impact of all those books that I read at that time was to convict me that by endorsing so-called Christian psychology, I had been directing people to worldly solutions, worldly wisdom, so-called, rather than to what Paul calls the unfathomable riches of Christ in Ephesians 3.8. And I caught a lot of flack then, and I've caught a lot of flack since for my stance, but I, over the last quarter century, 25 years now, am more and more certain that I made the right decision by repenting and leaving so-called Christian psychology behind. At the same time, I have realized how far short I myself fall from knowing and appropriating and enjoying the all-sufficiency of Christ in my own walk with him, especially as I read some of these great authors. And that was reinforced for me this past year. I read twice Tony Reinke's wonderful book, Newton, on the Christian life. And I've told you about it. I led a group of you through that book. Um, But in that book, Newton's theme was looking unto Jesus for every need. And Reinke points out that one of Newton's favorite biblical phrases is the one in our text that Christ is all and in all. Uh, The uh, well-known British preacher C.H. Spurgeon preached at least four sermons on this Christ is all passage that I'm attempting today. And uh, in one of them, he cites an aged mentor who told a young protege, he said, uh, be careful not to take too magnificent a text when you preach. And Spurgeon said, uh, that warning is sounding in my ears as I attempt to preach this. And he adds, if he were to try to give all the meaning of this text, uh, this boundless text as he calls it, it would take all of time and all eternity, and he said even then he would fall short. So you can imagine how I feel now coming to this text when a great preacher like Spurgeon says that. But I say all of that just to um, encourage you to read some of these sources I've just mentioned that lift up Christ and show our sufficiency in Christ. And that's what I'm going to attempt to do here today. Um, What Paul is telling us is that since Christ is all, And in all, we must be Christ-centered, both in our personal lives and also in our church life. And as you think about it, Paul's words are really a summary of the entire Bible, that Christ is all and in all. I'm going to try and limit myself mainly to Colossians. I'm going to cite some from Ephesians, which is parallel in many ways to Colossians as we think through its implications. And the first thing I want to point out is that since Christ is all, 
and Christ is in all, that we must be Christ-centered then in our personal lives. And beginning with the sweep of eternity to eternity, Paul shows in Colossians that Christ is all in God's eternal purpose. Everything that God is doing in his eternal purpose centers in the Lord Jesus Christ. You remember how on the night he was betrayed in that wonderful prayer that we have recorded for us in John 17, Jesus said that before he came to this earth, he shared the Father's glory and he asked the Father to restore him to that glory. And <clears throat> Paul, in I was just going to quote a couple of the verses here, but uh, I'm going to read you the whole thing. In Ephesians chapter 1, in verses <clears throat> excuse me, 3 through 12, it's one long run-on sentence in Greek. And so I, I was hard-pressed to know, what verse do I pick? So I'm going to read it all to you. But he's talking here about how Christ is at the center of God's eternal purpose. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And notice how often as I read this, he mentions in Christ or in him. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved, that is, in Jesus. In him, we also have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. He made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him. Notice how his eternal purpose centers in Christ, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. In him we also have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. Wow, what a, what a paragraph that is. I just want to point out mostly here now from Colossians, six ways in which Christ is all in God's eternal purpose. First of all, Paul has shown us that Christ is the image of the invisible God, the fullness of deity in bodily form. We saw in Colossians 1.19, for it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. And then in Colossians 2.9, he adds, for in him, in Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And that means that the only way that we can know the God who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen nor can see, as Paul puts it in 1 Timothy 6, the only way we can know that God is to know him through 
the manifestation he has given us of himself in the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember when Philip asked Jesus, show us the Father. And uh, Jesus, I think rather, I don't know, frustrated or uh, amazed or something, said to, to Philip, John fourteen nine, Have I been so long with you, and you've not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? So there's only one way we can know God, and that is to come through the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. A second thing Paul has shown us is that Christ has created all that exists. He states in Colossians 1, 15 and 16, For he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Now, as you probably know, the Jehovah's Witnesses use that uh, term, the firstborn, to try to argue that Jesus was the first being whom God created. I got a letter from the Jehovah's Witness man. He hadn't written me in about a year. But uh, there's a Jehovah's Witness guy in Georgia who wrote to me oh, a year and a half ago, uh, thanking me for my sermons online, telling me how much they had helped him as he teaches the Bible. And I thought, oh, my goodness, you know, we're in trouble here. So I wrote back to him, and we exchanged, I don't know, three or four letters, and he tried to convince me Jesus is not God, and I uh, pointed out to him that he was not going to be in heaven if he didn't repent. So he wrote me this week, and uh, amazingly, he said to me, you're probably going to tell me that I'm in a false cult that uses a Bible that is tweaked to support our false doctrine. And I wrote him back, and I said, well, I probably would have been a little more gentle in how I said it, but yeah, I said, that's exactly what I think. And uh, he was trying to convince me that God is not sovereign and that God did not choose us, that we chose God and all this stuff. And I didn't even debate that with him because he doesn't know Christ. So how can you debate spiritual truth with a man in darkness? But if they would just read verse 16, Paul explains what he means by the term firstborn. He says, for, okay, I'm going to explain to you what firstborn means. By him, all things were created. Now, if Christ created all things that were created, both visible and invisible, then obviously Christ is not created, right? And yet the Jehovah's Witnesses say he was first created. Um, John 1.3 supports the same point. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. So that means in terms of our lives, he is the sovereign. And that means we are not God, he is God, and we must submit all of our lives to him as our only rightful Lord. Uh, so uh, Paul has shown then, first of all, that Christ is the image of God. He's the bodily uh, form of God on this earth. Second, he created all that exists. Third, he shows that Christ is eternal, and in him all things hold together. Verse 17 of Colossians 1 says, He, Christ, is before all things. 
And in him, all things hold together. And before means priority in time. Uh, you remember that Jesus told the Jews who were attacking him in John 8, 58, before Abraham was, I am. He didn't say before Abraham was, I was, as the Jehovah's Witnesses would put it. But he said before Abraham was, I am, present tense. And the Jews picked up on what he was saying because they knew the Old Testament. And in Exodus 3.14, when Moses asked God, uh, who shall I say, uh, tell them, sent me? God said, tell them, I am sent you. I am who I am. And Jesus is claiming to be God. I am. And the Jews knew that. They picked up stones to stone him. When Paul says, in him all things hold together, he means that Jesus is the power that holds literally all the atoms of the universe together. And if Jesus chose to let go, we would all disintegrate instantly. We would vaporize. And so again, that phrase shows we're totally dependent on Christ for our very existence and for our every need. In the fourth place, Paul shows in Colossians that Christ is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Verse 18 of chapter 1. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. And in that context... Uh, He's just said Christ is the head of his church. Beginning means Christ originated the church. And then, as we saw just recently in Colossians 3.10 last week, he created the new man, which is Christ the head and his body, the church. And by the firstborn from the dead, he means that Christ, Jesus, his resurrection was the first resurrection of its type, of its kind. There are other resurrections in the Bible that are recorded, but everybody who was resurrected from the dead, except Jesus, died again. Jesus is the first, the prototype of how we will receive resurrection bodies when we are uh, with Christ, when he comes again. We'll get new bodies that are indestructible, like Jesus' body, And so the fact that Jesus is the firstborn from the dead means that he is our hope because as our bodies are falling apart, and I'm more and more aware of that every every month, but as ours fall apart, we have that hope that Christ is coming. We will get new bodies that will not be subject to disease and aging and death. The fifth truth about Christ in Colossians is that he will come to have first place in everything. Verse 18 of chapter 1, he himself will come to have first place in everything. Uh, in the parallel in Ephesians 1.10, Paul says, God will sum up all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. And because Jesus was willing to leave the glory of heaven take the form of a servant, and go to the cross. Paul in Philippians 1, 9 through 11 says, For this reason also God highly exalted him, and he bestowed on him the name that that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those that are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And of course, that means practically 
that every day we need to seek to make Christ exalted and first place in our lives, uh, in every aspect of our lives. And then finally here, Paul, in discussing God's eternal purpose, we see how through Christ the entire creation is going to be reconciled to God. In Colossians 1.20, Paul says, Through him, through Christ, to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace, By the blood of his cross, through him I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Now, by all things there, Paul is probably referring to the new heavens and the new earth that is promised uh, when Christ uh, reigns over all. And so the creation that fell when Adam and Eve fell is going to be restored to its glory, and Jesus will be Lord over all. And so... Uh, In Christ, we can look forward to that glorious future. And Paul's point here is simply that Christ is all in all in God's eternal purpose and glory. We are in him. So we're in that purpose of God. Uh, The second point that I point out here is that, that Christ is all in God's plan of salvation. And we saw that in Ephesians 1. God blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. God chose us in him before the foundation of the world. But here in Colossians, Paul shows that in Christ we have redemption, the forgiveness of all our sins. Verse 14 of chapter 1, he says that in him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And then in chapter 2, verse 13, when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh... He made you alive together with him. And then that wonderful uh, statement at the end, having forgiven us all our transgressions. Uh, May I ask this question? Why does a Christian psychologist have to turn to psychology to offer a solution to guilt when we have the blood of Christ forgiving us from all our sins? I mean, I don't get it. If he forgave us all our sins, isn't the answer to guilt in Christ? Um, You know, so why turn away? Uh, You just can't add anything of your own to what Christ did. You can't add penance to get more forgiveness. You can't add good works to get more forgiveness. You can't add vows and promises. Oh, I'll do this if you'll forgive me. All you can do is receive the grace that God offers you freely through Christ. It's a gift. And the Jews, they thought that being good Jews would commend them to God, like many religionists today do. You know, if I'm a good Catholic or even if I'm a good Baptist or Presbyterian or Methodist, I'll get to heaven. And Paul here says there's no Greek or Jew. All that doesn't matter, but Christ is all and in all. And, of course, the Jews thought, well, by keeping circumcision and all the Jewish law, we'll commend ourselves to God. And Paul wipes that out here in one fell swoop by saying, uh, there's no circumcised and uncircumcised in the church, but Christ is all and in all. And the Greeks, like most of us, we all think we are the superior race. The Greeks thought they were better than the uneducated barbarians and Scythians. And Paul confronts that. 
and says there's no barbarian or Scythian, but Christ is all and in all. And those who were slave owners in the Roman world who were born free and owned slaves who were treated like so much property, they thought, well, of course, we're better than these slaves. And Paul wipes that out in one phrase by saying, there's no slave or freeman, but Christ is all and in all. Um, In reading for this message, by the way, if you just Google the phrase, Christ is all and in all, you get some wonderful hits on Google. And one of the ones I got was a sermon by the Puritan Jeremiah Burroughs. And he put it like this. As far as God sees Christ in anyone, he accepts them. If Christ is not there, no matter what they have, he does not regard them. So to be right with God isn't a matter, again, of religion or keeping rituals or your Christian background or your race or your moral improvement. or It's not regarding any of that. The question is, do you have Christ? If so, you have all. And if not, you have nothing. Christ is all and in all. So make sure you're in Christ through faith in his shed blood. The second thing about Christ being all in our salvation, Paul says, is that in Christ we are complete. Verse 10 of chapter 2, in him you have been made complete. Now, if you back up to chapter 1, verse 28, he says something that at first sounds a little contradictory. He says, my aim is to present every man complete in Christ. Well, it's a tension that we saw even in Colossians 3, 9, and 10 when we compared that with Ephesians. In Ephesians, he says, um, you need to put on the new man, put off the old man. In Colossians, he says, it's a done deal. And there's a tension there between what God has made us positionally in Christ and then the need practically day by day to live that way, to put what we are into practice as we live. And that's, I believe, this part about being complete in Christ. Um, We are complete in Christ positionally. Now it's going to take all of life, in fact, all of eternity, to discover all the riches, uh, the unsurpassing riches of his grace. That's going to take us forever. But daily, we discover those treasures in the word of God. And, of course, the question then is, well, why do we need to turn to the world's wisdom for how to cope with our lives, our problems, when we have every blessing in Christ? Why not mine those treasures rather than go drink out of the polluted cisterns of the world? The third thing Paul says about our salvation is that in Christ we have all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, Colossians 2.3. And he's hitting at the false teachers here because they thought they needed or that they claimed they had wisdom and knowledge if you just came to them. Paul says in Colossians 2.3, in whom, that is Christ, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now, the fact that they're hidden treasures would indicate you got to mine them out. You know, they're not just obvious. You have to seek God for that wisdom and knowledge. Uh, By knowledge, I believe he's referring to the knowledge of God and of ourselves as that opening 
statement in the Institutes uh, puts it, uh, wisdom is the ability, the skill, to apply the knowledge we have about God and about ourselves into our daily lives so that we live, uh, construct beautiful lives for God that will bring glory to him. The Bible, the wisdom of the Bible, uh, centers in two things, loving God and loving your neighbor. Those are the two great commandments, and Jesus said you can sum up the whole thing with those two. So the Bible is a relationship book, as we will see next week. Um, but all that we need to know about relationships can be found in the Word of God. How to have harmonious relationships. That's my theme next Sunday as we get into verses 12 and 13. But all of the New Testament is about Christ. All of the Old Testament is about Christ. So the Word of God The Old Testament points ahead. The New Testament points back to Jesus Christ. He's the center of the Bible. And Christ certainly shows us how we can relate in a loving manner to God, how we can relate in a loving manner to one another. So I I just can't encourage you enough to be reading constantly the Word of God. And as you read it, say, Lord, would you open my eyes to see Christ And reveal Christ to my soul. And he is our sufficiency as we come to know him more deeply. Also in Christ we have the hope of eternal glory. We saw that in Colossians 1.27. To whom, and he's referring there to the saints. To whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among uh, among the Gentiles. Which is. Christ in you, the hope of glory. And then we saw in Colossians 3, 4, when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. And if that's our eternal hope, and that's our destiny to have glory in Christ, then we need to seek to make Christ our hope in every trial, every problem that we face in this life. He's our hope. He's what we look to. And in 2 Corinthians 4, Paul says, all all this momentary light affliction, (laughs) and he describes that light affliction later, you know, stoned, beaten with rods, shipwrecked, persecuted. All this light affliction, Paul says, is producing for us an eternal weight of glory as we look not to the things which are seen, but to the things which are unseen. And he's talking about our hope in Christ. And so the point is this. Christ is all in God's eternal purpose. Christ is all in God's plan of salvation. So shouldn't Christ be all in our personal lives? And that's the the next point. Christ must be all in our personal lives. Now, here's where this begins. You can't start to apply anything I've said until you've put your trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. And if you've never done that, you can add all sorts of uh, commandments to your life and all that, and you're just into moralism. God must regenerate you, give you new life, as we saw last week, make you a new person in Christ. 
And that happens the moment you put your trust in what Jesus did for you as your substitute on the cross. He died in the place of sinners. And so we come to Christ as acknowledging our sin. And God does a marvelous exchange of giving us the righteousness of Christ to our account, taking all our sin and putting it on Jesus. And we stand before him, new creatures in Christ, uh, forgiven, as we saw. And so um, you can't begin until then. And then once you do that, it's a lifelong walk, as we saw in Colossians 3.1, of seeking those things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Or, as he says again in verse 2, it's a daily discipline Setting your mind on the things above, not on the things which are on earth. Uh, in 2 Corinthians 10.5, Paul puts it this way. It requires taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And that's a lifelong discipline. But it, it means, as we saw last time, you daily cast off the dirty clothes of the old life. And daily you put on the new clean clothes that we've been made in Christ. And you look to Christ daily as your all. Uh, In 2 Corinthians 3.18, Paul puts it this way. But we all with unveiled face, he's contrasting it with Moses who would veil his face. With unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. So we're looking unto Jesus are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. Now, I wish I could say a lot more about that, because I could go on on this for a long, long time, and the Bible does. But I wanted to also just briefly consider that since Christ is all and in all, not only must we be Christ-centered in our personal lives, but also we must be Christ-centered in our church life. When Paul says there's no Greek or Jew, um, barbarian, Scythian, slave, or freeman, he does not mean, obviously, that God obliterates all of our personalities and all of our backgrounds and throws us in the blender where we kind of merge into one homogenous group. Uh, What he means is, we set aside our pride in those external things when we come to Christ. Those things don't matter anymore. You know, before salvation, we took pride in our race, or we took pride in our education, or we took pride in, you know, various cultural advantages and so on. And Paul says, none of that should matter. Christ is all and in all, meaning in all believers the Corinthian church, they were factionalizing and taking pride in, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Christ, you know, all of that. And Paul brings them right down to earth in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, when he says, what do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you didn't receive it? You know, all we have is from God as a gift. So who are we to puff ourselves up and think we're better than somebody else in Christ when it's all a gift? And so Christ is our unifying center. Now, Paul has shown us in Colossians 1.18 that Christ is the head of his body, the church, 
And we're only members of that body because Christ chose us in, in him before the foundation of the world. Uh, Christ rescued us, as he says in Colossians 1.13. We were captive. He rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. And if he hadn't done that, then what would be true of us is what Paul says in one of the bleakest verses in the Bible. In Ephesians 2.12, he said, uh, we would be alienated from God and his people, and he adds, having no hope and without God in the world. What a bleak thing that is. No hope and without God in the world. When you look at unbelievers, think of that. They may be successful, they may be rich, they may be educated. If they don't have Christ, they're without God and have no hope in this world. And so being a member of his body, the church, is a tremendous privilege. Do you ever think about that? What a glory to be a part of Christ and his church. We're members of his family and we all serve a common Lord. In his great cause, we all hope for his coming that will transform us all. We're all helping one another to grow to know Christ better. And that means, as we're going to look at next week, and I'm going to give you a little preview by reading the text here, we all need to work at Christ-centered relationships. Because Paul goes on in verse 12 and says, So, or therefore, here's the connection, with where we're at today. If Christ is all and Christ is in all, here's the practical ramification. As those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also you should forgive uh, one another. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. And so he goes on and he shows how practically we make Christ all in our church relationships, in our home. He'll go on to talk about wives and husbands and parents and children, in our work as he talks about slaves and masters and work and so on. And what it means is we need to work in making Christ all by working at harmonious relationships in the body of Christ. Beginning, of course, at home, but then here in the church. Uh, Because Christ dwells in every person who truly knows him. That's our unifying factor. We may not get along personality. Uh, We may not like certain things about a person. That all gets set aside. Do they have Christ? And I have Christ. Then we're one. And we need to work at our relationship. More on that next time. Now, I realize as I prepared this message that there are some of you who are struggling with really, really deep, serious problems. Maybe emotional problems. Maybe problems in your marriage. Problems with your kids. And you may listen to a message like this and think, Good night. That was practically uh, zero. Nothing applied to me. Steve's got his head in the clouds. You know, what an impractical message. I hope, unlike the psychologist that I mentioned earlier, you would not say, 
That's all worthless medicine. I hope not. Because Paul said, in fact, our head should be in the clouds. Ephesians, I mean, Colossians 3.1. Keep seeking the things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Uh, verse 2. We should be setting our minds on the things above, not on the things on this earth. Uh, so what I'm saying is, if you've got problems, it should be driving you to discover the treasures that are yours in Christ like it, you don't do when life is smooth. When life is smooth, we kind of bounce along and we don't seek the Lord so much. When problems hit, rather than running to the world, run to Christ. Run to Christ. He is all in all. When we're depressed, where's joy come from? Christ. You know, when we're anxious, where do we find peace? Christ. He himself is our peace. You know, when we're empty and we're emotionally drained, where do we find fullness? Christ. He's our fullness. You see, when we lack wisdom, where do we find wisdom? It's all centered in Christ. In him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. What do you possibly need that you can't find in Christ? And so God graciously brings problems into our lives to drive us to seek Christ. That's what I'm saying. Uh, Thomas Watson, I got this one on by Googling Christ is all in all also. He was a Puritan. He said this, if a man has sunshine, he does not complain that he lacks the light of a candle. Has he not enough who has the unsearchable riches of Christ? That's the point I'm trying to make. And so when you face problems, lean on Christ like you've never leaned on him before. When you face difficulties that are just puzzling and baffling, come to Christ and pray and seek him and trust him and make sure above all else that you have Christ because when you have Christ, you have all in all. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I confess my own shallowness in knowing Christ as all in all. And Lord, I pray that uh, I would go deeper in knowing him, in seeking him, in not looking to other sources for wisdom and fulfillment and happiness and all the other things we seek in this world. And I ask for all of my brothers and sisters here that whatever their problems are this morning, they would find the unsearchable riches of Christ to be more than sufficient for their need so that they would glorify you in those trials. And I pray, Lord, if any are here without Christ, that they would see that they have no hope and they're without you in this cruel and evil world, and they're going to die soon and stand before you in judgment. And so it's imperative 
that they seek Christ today. And I ask that you would drive them to the cross, that they would see that the death of Jesus is sufficient for all their sins, and that they would put their trust in Christ alone. And we ask all these things that the Lord Jesus would be glorified in our personal lives and here in our corporate life as a church. In his name, amen.